Many historians, including me, see Octavian's final victory against Antony as the opening lines of a new chapter in Rome's history, but also the history of the classical world. The victory at Actium won Octavian's sole control over Rome's empire. And because there was nobody left to oppose him and because he was so young, just 33 years old, Octavian was able to rule Rome for another four and a half decades from the year he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Octavian used his power to incredible effect, reshaping all aspects of Roman society from religion to politics, even the social hierarchy. And he shaped these into an autocratic system centered upon a single, semi-divine, all-powerful emperor. Octavian's achievements were stunning, and it's worth asking, how did he unify an empire that had been torn apart by factionalism, violence, political purges, and civil war? We'll find out on this episode of the Pax Romana podcast. Episode 6, A Republic in Name Only. Octavian was not going to make the same mistake that Caesar had made. And if you remember way back on episode one, I mentioned that a significant reason for Caesar's assassination was that he elevated himself so obviously above his fellow elites. Well, when Octavian had sole power, he did this as well, but his methods were far more subtle. Octavian doused his new regime in the trappings of republicanism and conservatism. He made everybody think that he wasn't doing something new, but he was restoring something that was old. And the innovations he made were improvements to prevent future civil wars, to bring peace. And that was what everybody wanted. I want you to remember that everything I'm about to share with you, powers that are given to different groups, titles that are given, political positions that are rearranged, all of these things were done with the consent of the Senate. So even though much of what I'm going to describe is extraordinary and clearly benefits Octavian more than it does any other individual or group, the fact that he uses the Senate to accomplish all of these things was a masterstroke of genius. This approach largely protected Octavian from the kinds of accusations that dogged Caesar during his last few years as dictator. Octavian could legitimately say, look, the Senate are the ones that are doing these things. And even more subtly, by using the Senate to essentially honor himself and benefit the people and groups that he wished to benefit, he was habituating the Republic's oldest and noblest body to find their purpose in doing the will of a single man. Octavian may have been the first Roman emperor, but by all appearances, especially in those first years, he looked more like a benefactor, like a person who loved the Republic so much that he was happy to use his vast personal fortune and influence to ensure its survival. There were several prevailing interests after Actium that he needed to satisfy in order to unite a society that had been completely divided and fractured and at each other's throats for generations. The first and perhaps the most important constituency that needed to be placated 
were the Caesarian elites, senators, wealthy landowners, merchants, and others who had been loyal to Caesar's heir, that is Octavian, but also Caesareans that had been loyal to Mark Antony and Lepidus as well. Octavian needed to rebuild the big tent of Caesarianism because he was going to become another Caesar. He needed all those men, including those who didn't support him. They wanted to continue to have a share of power in the new regime. There was also, of course, the Senate. They certainly wanted a share of the power, but Octavian realized that they really wanted status. Under Caesar, the Senate were often humiliated and made to feel useless because Caesar, the dictator, was just running everything by fiat. Under Octavian, the Senate wanted to be included in the process. Even if it wasn't in the most meaningful ways, they wanted respect and deference. Would Octavian be humble enough to give it to them? And at least equally important to the Senate, maybe more so, were the men who had actually fought all of these civil wars. The Roman Senate was probably somewhere around 300 men, but the Roman military may have numbered as much as 300,000 men. And they had weapons. And while they were loyal to Octavian, Octavian himself had bought some of that loyalty. And if somebody else ever came with a better offer, well, the loyalty of those same soldiers might not be so reliable. All the soldiers wanted their pay. They wanted the retirement that was promised to them. And they needed some way to receive glory. Now, for Octavian soldiers, it was obvious they won. But Mark Antony's soldiers, too, needed some way to be able to save face and to recover their honor after having fought for the man who lost, a man who they were probably fiercely loyal to. How was Octavian going to bring them back into the fold of a unified Roman society? And I think lastly, we have to think about the broader population. They were utterly exhausted of civil war. They had been starved. They lacked economic security. The war, of course, would have been terrible for the Roman economy, sucking up resources and manpower to be expended and then consumed on the battlefield. They wanted peace. What I hope has become apparent to you by this list is that even though Octavian had sole command of an entire empire after Actium, it's not as though the job was going to be a cakewalk. If even one of these groups was unhappy with the way he was doing things, he was going to face problems. We have the benefit of hindsight to see what he did. And of course, it makes us think that what happened was inevitable because that's what happened. But we need to realize that this 33-year-old man was not guaranteed to have the kind of remarkable run at power that he did. And the fact that he did so in ways which were both entirely new to the Romans and at the same time appeared to be at least vaguely within the boundaries of the Republican Constitution is worth a little bit of contemplation. So how did he do it? Well, I'm not going to go through all of the steps chronologically. It would be too tedious. Instead, I just want to kind of summarize how the first 10 years or so after Actium went for all of these various groups, and then we'll also talk about what Octavian 
got in the deal as well. So let's start with the Caesareans. Octavian really did offer meaningful benefits and positions of power to Caesarean elites. While Octavian opened back up elections, allowing anybody to run for election, he would still endorse Caesareans who had supported him, but also in some cases, Caesareans who had supported, say, Mark Antony or Lepidus. And often, of course, that would lead to them winning elections. But this wasn't the same as Julius Caesar, who would simply appoint men into office. But Octavian did appoint Caesareans to governorships. And this is a major change. Normally, the Senate got to pick who would serve as governor of which province. And Octavian allowed them some rights to continue to do this in provinces where there was no real need for soldiers, the interior provinces of the Roman Empire, places like Italy or Macedonia or Sardinia, for example. But the outer provinces, the places where there were often still active conflicts, the places where there was more money to be made, the places which were contested, those sorts of places had their governors appointed by Octavian directly, and they were usually his most loyal and trusted associates. And those men that weren't given these prestigious governorships were usually given high-ranking positions in his military. And Egypt was given a special status. No senator was allowed to set foot in Egypt. They were totally banned. And instead, only the men that Octavian appointed could actually go into Egypt. For members of the Senate, they were given some meaningful scraps by Octavian. First off, Octavian nominally claimed to restore a republic. So in nominal terms, that meant the primacy of the Senate was restored. The court systems all continued, and many of the juries in these courts were exclusively senatorial. The other thing that Octavian did that's quite clever for senators is that he recognized that they really wanted honors and status. That was most important to them, and they would be willing to trade real power for the symbolic trappings of power, basically titles. So, for example, Octavian expanded the number of consuls. Instead of having two each year, there would now be four, two that would serve half the year, and they were elected into their position. And then after six months, those consuls would be relieved by two new consuls that Octavian appointed directly. This was very clever because Octavian was giving more opportunities to be recognized as the highest of the Roman magistrates, while also ensuring that at least half of them were directly appointed by him and therefore owed him. Octavian also made the Senate itself as a body more exclusive than any other group. You have to understand that in order to get into the Senate, several prerequisites had to be met. The first was you had to be elected to office. You had to actually hold a political position in the city of Rome. But even then, you still had to have a minimum amount of land. That's right. Rome's nobility was patrimonial. You couldn't just get rich off of money lending or trade, for example. You had to have land and quite a lot of it to be in the Senate. But that was also true of some of Rome's other upper classes. To be a senator, you had to have 400,000 sesterces in income from your land every year. 
That's hundreds of times the annual income of, say, a Roman soldier. It was a lot of money. But it wasn't enough to make the Senate truly elite. And so what Octavian did was more than double the amount of landed income a senator needed to earn. And at first, this caused some real problems for a few individual senators. About 100 senators could not meet the new minimum wealth requirement. This is where Octavian comes in to the rescue. One of many times he does this. He decided to use his personal wealth to bail out about 80 of those 100 senators and elevate them into this new, even more elite Senate. That made them very happy. It made their colleagues very happy. It made the senators feel like, once again, they were better than some of the new-moneyed people that were earning high incomes through trade and money lending and tax farming and a variety of other means. Lastly, the Senate really appreciated that Octavian regularly consulted them before issuing his edicts. He asked for their votes. He made arguments to them and asked them if they would support legislation. Now, Octavian could have done what he wanted. He had the military. He had no rivals to power. But the fact that he deferred to the Senate was meaningful to them. Again, Julius Caesar didn't do any of this. But it's amazing how just a little bit of politeness helped Octavian secure a much longer life than Julius Caesar had. Now, what about the soldiers? Because the civil wars appeared to be over for good, Octavian took the extraordinary step of permanently discharging more than half of the Roman army. And it had been huge at this point. Remember, all three triumvirs had about 20 legions each, and many more legions had been raised during the civil wars. These discharged soldiers were settled on land that was not confiscated this time. This would be different. Octavian agreed to buy the land. He was able to afford such extravagant purchases after conquering Egypt and raiding the treasury of the pharaohs. Thousands of years worth of gold, silver, jewels, and other treasures went directly into the coffers of Octavian making him likely one of the richest people to ever have lived. In the end, Octavian would maintain a standing army of 28 legions, or around 150,000 soldiers. So although he discharged quite a few, he kept a massive army still, and he distributed them into his external provinces, the places where there were most likely to be border disputes, foreign incursions, and also rebellions. And by distributing the armies across the border, a legion here, a legion there, he ensured that there was no massive army that a general could easily take command of and in turn march on Rome. Half of the reason the Pax Romana existed is because emperors finally took seriously the lessons of the late Republic that it was quite easy to obtain a large enough army to march on Rome. And what about the needs of the general population? They mostly got what they wanted. Octavian brought peace. He ended the prescriptions. Now, he had helped start the prescriptions, but he also ended them. Octavian also continued Rome's generous policy of distributing free grain to around 150 to 200,000 Roman men. Octavian also set up a small police force and a fire brigade in the city of Rome. 
And he launched a major building program that lasted most of his reign, which sustained thousands of jobs. So it would appear from all of that that Octavian was not only clever, politically astute, and sensitive to the needs of the various constituencies that he needed to placate, but that he was also generally pretty altruistic. I mean, here he is basically giving up various forms of power and also distributing money to different individuals and groups. Why would anybody suspect this man of transforming the Roman Republic into a military autocracy? But not everybody had the wool pulled over their eyes. Some realized what was happening. One of those people is the Roman senator Tacitus. He was born a few decades after the age of Augustus. But he looks back on that era as one in which senators like him gave up their republic to a charlatan. Here is what he says. Octavian won over the soldiers with gifts, the population with cheap grain, and all men with the sweets of peace. And so he grew greater by degrees and concentrated in himself the functions of the Senate, the political offices, and even the laws. He was wholly unopposed, for the boldest spirits had fallen in battle or in the prescriptions, and the remaining nobles were ready to be slaves and were raised higher by wealth and promotion. Aggrandized by such sudden changes, they preferred the safety of the present to the dangerous past. That's the Senator Tacitus in his Annals of Rome. Tacitus claims that Octavian concentrated in himself the functions of the Senate, political officials, and the laws. Well, what does he mean by that? In the Republic, power was divided. It was term-limited. It was split across numerous offices and bodies, and it was designed that way so that no one man could be king. But what Octavian did was gradually recombine all of those powers into a single individual. He wasn't technically a king, but he held all of these distributed powers at the same time, and that was exceptional. For example, he was consul every single year from 31 to 23 BC. Normally, that wasn't supposed to happen. You were supposed to be term-limited out of that office after a year. And Roman consuls held a power to command, that is, they could tell soldiers what to do, They could also tell Roman citizens what to do, but there were some forms of appeal that they could employ in order to not follow those orders in some cases, or at least have protection from the commands of a consul. But Octavian had a form of imperium that superseded those of normal consuls. It was a maius imperium, a greater imperium, which gave him the right to issue commands to Roman magistrates, including consuls. And he held titles which showed that he truly was better than everybody else. The big one that he ended up holding was princeps, or the first citizen. Now again, there's Republican precedent for this. There is the princeps senatus, the first man in the Senate. And there are other forms of princeps in the Roman Republic, but they were limited to particular groups or particular occasions. Octavian's position as the first covered 
all places and all groups. He was generally the first, supposedly the first among equals, which is again another form of doublespeak. You'll notice those a lot as we go through the history of the Pax Romana. Because, of course, there's a major tension in trying to make the system look like it is still the Republic while also ensuring that one man has supreme and absolute authority. That kind of incoherent arrangement creates contradictions that come out in the language that describes it. Octavian would be named Prince of Peace. He would be named Father of the Country. Father of the Country was a title that a few Romans had held before. Cicero, for example, held that title. Curiously, it wasn't until 12 BC, almost two decades after defeating Mark Antony at Actium, that Octavian got the title and position of Pontifex Maximus. Now, you haven't heard that title since episode two of this podcast, back when that position was given to Lepidus after the death of Caesar. Octavian exiled Lepidus from the Triumvirate in 36 BC, but he didn't take Lepidus's title of Pontifex Maximus away from him. Instead, Octavian waited until Lepidus died, and when he did so in 12 BC, the position of Pontifex Maximus naturally fell to Octavian. So he held religious authority too. Octavian also held permanent sacrosanctity of his body. This was something that Caesar held as well, but it also was not totally without Republican precedent. Now, I mentioned earlier that consuls had the right to command Roman citizens, but what if those commands were unjust? Well, the Republic invested 10 men with sacrosanctity so that they could physically get in between a consul and a citizen that the consul was abusing. They could do this on an individual basis, or they could also do this for whole groups by disrupting, for example, a political assembly that might exploit an individual citizen or a whole group of citizens. But every year there were 10 men that held that power. And that was to ensure that no single man could just go around disrupting everything. But Octavian, by having this power on his own, was able to veto any action or any legislation or even any meeting. Now, the last honor that Octavian received was purely symbolic, but it may have been the most powerful, and that was a new name, the name of Augustus. And the Roman senator Cassius Dio tells us how this name came about and what it means. Quote, when Octavian had carried out all of his promises, the name Augustus was at length bestowed upon him by the Senate and by the people. Octavian was desirous of being called Romulus, but when he perceived that this caused him to be suspected of desiring to be king, he abandoned those efforts and instead took the title of Augustus. With this, he signified that he was more than human, for all the most precious and sacred objects are called Augusta. That's Cassius Dio's Roman history. Taking a new name allowed Octavian, who we'll now call Augustus, to create a new character. Augustus was different than Octavian. Octavian was a triumvir, a violent man, a man who engaged in civil war, a man who put to death thousands of elites, a man who confiscated property and raised taxes, a man who was hated, in fact, by many in Rome. 
But Augustus was a holy man, a reverent man, a man who deserved respect and honor, a man who was a victor, a man who brought peace by his very being. And the name of Augustus was so powerful that eventually he stopped holding official power altogether. He didn't need to because he was Augustus, the majestic one, the holy one. And it was clever that he did this. He wasn't calling himself a king. He wasn't calling himself a dictator. He was something new, but he protected something old, the Roman Republic. And it didn't matter in some ways that there was no precedent for this kind of power in the history of Rome, because for many Romans, including members of the Senate, it was an unprecedented time. They truly were tired of the civil wars, and they were willing to trade their liberty for security. In essence, the agreements that existed between all of these different constituencies allowed everybody to get something that they wanted and allowed everybody to save face. This allowed for a sustainable basis for Augustus's new government and effectively established a new political constitution, one that would last for hundreds of years. We actually have the words of Augustus himself summarizing how it is that he came into this unprecedented power. He says this, in my sixth and seventh consulships, by the way, that's the year 28 and 27 BC, After I had extinguished civil war, and at a time when, with universal consent, I was in complete control of everything, I transferred the Republic from my power to the dominion of the Senate and the people of Rome. And for this service of mine, I was named Augustus by decree of the Senate. And after this time, I excelled in all influence, although I possessed no more official power than anyone else who was my colleague in the different magistracies. That's Augustus in a document called the Res Gestae, a final accounting that he inscribed near the end of his life, which is still preserved in stone to this day. But Octavian here is telling what we might call a true lie. It's true that he extinguished civil war only because he won them. And it's true that he gave the Republic back to the Senate but only on the obvious implied agreement that real power would now be in his hands. And it's true that he possessed no more power than anybody else, but that's because all of the power that was split up into various different officials and political offices for the nearly 500-year history of the Roman Republic were all reconstituted and combined into a single person, Augustus. And as we'll learn next time, even that was not enough for him. Augustus would place himself at the very center of Roman life, becoming an almost messianic figure, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God. What did Octavian do with so much power? We'll talk about that next time on the Pax Romana podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pax Romana podcast. For more information, including a list of primary sources and further reading, check the show notes. Music by Red Productions and Exocore. Follow Dr. Colin Elliott on X at ProfCPE or email colin at paxromanapodcast.com. Listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just about anywhere podcasts are available. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Pax Romana Podcast.